right, good stuff. Well, my name is, uh, is Robert Hampshire. I'm the pastor of worship and discipleship here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, and that is the case for a lot of you, uh, man, what a great crowd on Father's Day 2021. Man, this is, this is good stuff. Thank you, Pastor Trey, for leading us uh, this morning in, in youth. But if, you haven't, I've had, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I want to give you just a few little uh, tidbits about who I am and my family, just so you have a little, little better idea of who it is that's up here talking. Uh, I grew up in Chesney, South Carolina, which is about three hours west of here. Well, uh, Metropolis, actually a very small town. I met my beautiful wife of 13 years while I was uh, in college. We have three kids now, Brooklyn, Bryson, and Abram. And uh, we bought our first house this year ever, which was, uh, was pretty exciting, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I should be clapping about that or not, because now I have to actually like fix my own stuff, which I don't really, I don't really like that. But anyways, uh, I think a minivan is the most practical vehicle that you can own. And also, another thing about me is I love a good dad joke. Uh, the cornier, the better. And so I got one for you. My son uh, told me this. I don't even know where he got, uh, gets his jokes from. But uh, anyway, so he told me this a couple of days. So I just wanted to share this with you. This is a real spiritual uh, joke here. This will really help you out. Uh, not spiritual at all. But anyways, so here it is. What is a pirate's favorite letter? Well, you'd think it would be R, but his first love be the C. <laughs> Come on now. Happy Father's Day. That's good. That's good. All right. Man, I get, I get an applause. I should be a comedian. That's, that's, that's really good. Uh, actually, so normally uh, I'm behind a guitar and leading worship because of, because of the other role of uh, worship pastor. But this morning, I, I'm kind of putting on my discipleship pastor hat, if you will. And, uh, and, I, and I have the opportunity to preach, which, let me just say, I consider an absolute privilege, not something I take lightly in any way, uh, whether it's just, I don't, I don't take lightly preaching uh, scripture, I don't take lightly preaching in this opportunity, and just getting the opportunity from Pastor Rod when he asked me, um, it's just something that, that, uh, that I love and I'm very grateful of, and, and I consider the weight, the, uh, the pressure of, of what I'm trying to do in speaking of Pastor Rod, how blessed are we? We got our hands ready uh, to clap. How blessed are we to have Pastor Rod and Pastor Tina part of our church? Yeah. Uh, and, and Pastor Trey as well. We don't want to leave him out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, it's, but, I was, but I was thinking as I was preparing really the last couple weeks, and I was thinking of Pastor Rod, uh, especially because he's normally the one that is preaching on Sunday morning. Uh, he is the same. This is something that I've, I've learned about Pastor Rod. He is the same no matter where he is, he's exactly the same. Whether he is up here preaching, he's sitting in an office, he's sitting at lunch, I imagine on his, you know, sitting at his couch, he's just conversational, he's relatable, he's silly enough that when the stories he tells, which always somehow finds its way back to this, uh, you know, poignant point, uh, but he's silly enough in his stories that my 10-year-old son pays attention, and for that, uh, I really appreciate that, so, <laughs> so thank you. Uh, but, but I was thinking also of Pastor Trey's kind of, you, you're all familiar with him, uh, or many of you are, of, of kind of his style in preaching. He, he's, he's maybe not necessarily that conversational and, and, and funny, but maybe he's more the, the pep rally, let's energize the troops and, you know, charge hell with a water pistol kind of guy. Uh, but just so you know, I am neither of those kind of preachers. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what you could say my style is. Uh, I was thinking this week, and I told a couple people, it has been, in the last, in the last year, I've preached twice, uh, and it was something that for several years I, I did a good bit of, but for the last year uh, it's been twice, and 
and, and so I thought one of two things could probably happen. Number one, I could uh, stutter the whole sermon. You just have to suffer through it. You like that? Uh, the other thing is everything that I've been thinking of for the past year has just kind of been burning inside me. It might come out today, so we might be here a while. Uh, either way, Pastor Rod's back up next week, and so we'll be good. But uh, anyways, it, it is good, though, at times to, if nothing else, to just kind of hear a different voice, right? To hear truth from a different angle with a different voice, sometimes that's exactly what we need. So I just pray that this morning's uh, teaching time this morning will be, will be helpful in, for, in whatever way to you. So those disclaimers out of the way, here's, uh, I, I think week, I lost count, but week number three of our road trip series. We'll, we'll get to where we're going in a second. But let me introduce it with this idea. Words can be powerful. We probably know that, and I'm not even talking about some kind of superstitious kind of weird way, like you say it and something happens. I'm just saying that when we hear a word, emotions can come with it and other thoughts, other words can come with it. And so, for example, you might hear the word government, and you might get some groans and some, you know, shaking head, and you might have a bunch of words that pop in your mind when you hear that. Or I might say the word vacation, and there might be a completely set of feelings and thoughts, and you might end up daydreaming for the rest of the sermon about where you went, just went or where you want to go, so don't do that. Uh, but words carry with them thoughts and emotions. It's just kind of how God created them. And now, here is a word that might excite you, or it might, uh, it, it might cause fear, <laughs> it might cause anger, it might cause joy, happiness, I'm not sure, but it's going to create something because... We have all had experience with it. And it may be something that we would need to spend some time thinking about. What, what do I think of? And so here's the word. It's church. And so the question is, what do you think of when you hear the word church? And now you don't, can't say that out loud necessarily in this, in this room. We don't have time for that. But, but if we did, if we passed the microphone down to everyone said what they thought of when they heard the word church, we would get a lot of different answers. And we would probably get a lot of different feelings as well. So, and, and, because, and if we're honest, we would have all mixed feelings about church. So especially because the word church can mean several different things. I mean, it can be the building. When we use the word church, I'm going to you know, church. Or, uh, or we might talk about the service. You know, we had church today. Or we might be talking about the people that are gathered. That is my church. We might be talking about the organization uh, this is, you know, the church and kind of that, that structure and the hierarchy and the policies and the politics and all that stuff. You might be talking about several different things when you hear the word church. The most biblical understanding of church is the Greek word ekklesia, which really just means the people that are gathered. And that's good to keep in mind. We're going to come back to that later. The, the most biblical use of the word church, most biblical understanding of church is the people. So we are the church. Again, remember that. We're going to come back to it. But here's the deal. Sadly... When you think of the word church, for some people, it brings them feelings of, uh, or thoughts of routine and traditions. And I've talked to many people, that's what comes to mind. Or it might, might come to, what might come to their mind is arguments and splits. Uh, some people are way too familiar with that. Or maybe it's rules and hypocrisy and maybe even power struggles and power trippings. And, and I hope that, that, you know, none of us in here would ever... Uh, think of those things when you hear the word church. That's not us, right? We are only going to think of good things. Uh, but I think if we were honest, I know for myself, I've had some great experiences with church. I've had experiences that brought joy, that brought happiness, that, that 
marked my life and my mind in very positive ways. And I have great memories when I think of the word church. But there's been times that I guess the word would be uh, church was pretty lame. <laughs> or there were even times that when I think of church, I can think of some pretty tragic experiences that I've had. And maybe you have had some of those kinds of experiences. There's a lot of different thoughts, a lot of different feelings that we have when we think of the word church. But if we look at scripture, especially the, the first church, the first Christians in the first church in the New Testament book of Acts, which we're going to be looking at that in a few other places this morning, uh, that's, I, I would say that's the best place we should go for our understanding of church. But when we look at scripture, there, there's one robust, overarching word that I think should probably come to our mind first. And, and I would, uh, as a result of today's sermon, I would, I would love for that to be the case, that we get to the place where when I think church, this is what I think. This is, the, this is the word that I think of. But again, when you look at the first church in the New Testament, there's a word that we, we should associate with it, with it that is more important than small groups or Sunday school. That's more important than uh, potlucks. Those are good. More important than youth groups and kids' ministries. More important than worship hymns. All these things are good, but there's one word that I would say that should rise to the top because all those things fall under it, and the word is discipleship. Discipleship. Now think about this. Picture, uh, picture a house. You didn't know I was an artist, but uh, so picture a, just kind of this symbol, symbol, symbol of a house where you have a, a foundation, you have a roof, and then you have uh, four columns in this in this structure and and so if you will just kind of thinking of this the the uh the bottom of this the foundation it represents our beliefs our beliefs this is our life this is our christianity this is the church again the church isn't a building but hopefully the the, the little picture just kind of communicates something but the bottom is belief everything is built on and i would love to to, to talk about a lot more, I don't have time this morning, but everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think, everything that we feel is built on our beliefs in our life and in our church. And specifically, the most important belief is our belief in the gospel. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Is the Bible truth? All those things, that's, that's the pinnacle of all the beliefs that we hold, but Nevertheless, all of our beliefs result in everything else. Everything's built on our beliefs. And that's kind of the idea that Jesus used in Matthew 18 when he said that uh, believing in Jesus as the son of the living God is the rock upon which he would build his church. All of this is built on this rock. And again, here is where it's helpful to remember that the church is primarily people that have by God's grace faithfully responded to the gospel and Paul taught this clearly when he wrote this in Romans chapter 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Remember, it starts with belief. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Romans 10. So those who build their life, you who build your life on the foundation of the gospel are the church. So he explained it to us, meaning uh, we here are a local representation of the church. Or you can say it like this, we are the church. I think that's an important understanding. Matter of fact, can we just say that together? 
we are the church. So if the foundation is belief, then the roof, or what we're building up to, there's that word again, discipleship. That, that's what we're leading to, is discipleship. And we use that word often, it's in my title, so what is it? What is discipleship? And so I want to spend some time explaining what that is, and then we're going to talk about what we need to do about it, and then, then we'll be done this morning. First, a disciple is essentially a follower of Christ, as far as a disciple in the Christian sense, where they're a follower of Christ. It's more than a student who's just learning things in a classroom, and it's more than a spectator or a fan who's just watching people perform. Uh, a disciple is becoming like someone else. They're becoming like someone else. They are an apprentice or a trainee so devoted to their leader and to their ideas that they accept them, they adhere to them, and they assist in spreading them. If you're a disciple of someone, you are accepting what they're teaching, you are adhering to what they're teaching, and you assist them in spreading what they're teaching. It's essentially, a disciple is trying to become like someone else. And we can define discipleship, again, at least for a Christian, in a very simple way, and it's this. Discipleship is the process of becoming more like Christ. Let's read that together. Discipleship is the process of becoming more like Christ. So whether we realize it or not, we are all here because of discipleship. We may not have ever framed it in that way, and I'll explain what I mean by that, but we're all here because of discipleship, and more specifically, as Christians, we are all the result of someone discipling someone else. We're all the result of someone discipling someone else. Again, you may not have thought about that, so let me explain a little bit more fully. If you were to go back in the very beginning of the Gospels, again, we're reading through the Gospels as a church, Jesus first appeared by the Jordan River, and he was baptized, which I love that whole scene, because as Jesus, uh, he went in the water, which is why we baptize by immersion, but he, and then when he came out of the water, Scripture says not only was Jesus in the flesh, the Son of God there, but a dove, or, or the Holy Spirit in the shape of a dove, or form of dove, came down on him, and at the same time, God the Father spoke through heaven, uh, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So you see the Trinity in uh, in the beginning of the Gospels, in a way, uh, more clearly in a way than, than you really, uh, I think, anywhere else in Scripture, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, in that moment, when he first appeared by the Jordan River, he didn't just do things, he didn't just talk, he actually began his ministry by inviting other people to follow him. And you may, you may know some of those names of the people that followed him. You may know some of those stories. But in Matthew chapter 4, specifically, Jesus called Simon and Andrew to do this. And he said this, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus was a fisher of men. He, he wasn't worried about uh, catching fish in the water. There are times that uh, you know, he miraculously did or, or caused others to do it. But he was, he was focused on people, and he was a fisher of men. So he said, I want you to come, follow me, put down your nets, put down your rods, put down, uh, leave your family behind, follow me, and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And then... He called a man named James, John, and then the rest of the 12 uh, disciples, later became known, known as apostles, but he called those 12 in a similar way. And so there was Jesus, and he called his handful of disciples. And the 12 are, are significant, those 12 disciples are significant for several reasons. First, it's because they were Jesus' first and closest disciples. Those are the first ones he called, and they were the closest to him. Jesus, at times 
spoke to very large crowds. As you read through the Gospels, you find there are times that he was out on top of a mountain, or you know, on a, on a hillside or in a field, and he was talking to thousands of people at once. And there were times that Jesus went to the temple and he spoke to probably hundreds gathered, gathered there. But for the, for the most part, Jesus spent his time with these twelve these closest of his disciples. He was rubbing shoulders with them. He was uh, walking places with them, sailing in boats with them, eating meals, celebrating life, and even mourning loss with these, this handful of followers of Christ. And the 12 were more than supporters of a religion. And they were more than supporters of a set of rules. That, that wasn't why they were following Christ. In fact, later on, they would become known as eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. That's one of the reasons why we know them as apostles, Scripture tells us, because they experienced the resurrected Christ. They fully embraced the gospel of the Savior who lived, died, rose again, ascended to heaven where he makes intercession for his children, where he prays for us. And because of their belief, again, these 12, after Jesus left the earth, Luke 24 says that they lived joyfully and they were continually praising God. Not because Jesus died, but because what they believed, who, Je who they believed Jesus was and what they believed in Je what Jesus did. Because they experienced this resurrected Christ. Again, it wasn't about a religion, it wasn't about a set of rules, it was about this gospel that they believed. Not only that, but scripture says they wrote about this gospel. Again, we're thankful for that because we have the gospel. In, in scripture, uh, they preached about it to many people. They began movements or, or the first church because of it. And they all died because of their belief in the gospel. Not because Jesus was some other prophet, some other guy, but they believed he is who he said he was. And he did what he said he did. And he died and rose again. And they died for that gospel. So they were significant. Jesus called his handful of disciples. But by the end of Jesus' earthly ministry... That handful of people had grown significantly to many more people. And we know some of those followers by name. For example, Nicodemus, Joseph, Mary, the other Mary, Martha, Lazarus, uh, the wee little man, Zacchaeus. Those were all followers of Christ, at least by the end of Jesus' ministry. But in fact, we don't even know the names of uh, what appear to be hundreds, at least more followers of Christ by the end of Jesus' Ministry After Jesus' ascension, Luke wrote this in Acts chapter 1. Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem. Again, this is after the ascension, after Jesus rose, uh, or, or rose, rose from the grave and then uh, went to heaven. The angels said, why are you seeking the living among the dead? And so the disciples returned to Jerusalem after that from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to Jerusalem. They went to this upper room. Where they were staying, this upper room was the same up, upper room that Jesus had his last supper with them. Where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, uh, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Not the other Judas, he was off the scene at this point. But Judas the son of James, so if you're counting, there was 11 there. And scripture says this, all these with one accord, that wasn't the first uh, Honda in the Bible, but all these with one accord means that unity... Come on, it's Father's Day. Good dad joke. <laughs> they were devoting themselves to prayer together, not just themselves anymore, right? With the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, the company of persons was in all about, what does it say? 120. 
So it started with Jesus, and then a handful of people is now 120. It's a big jump, but it didn't stop there. Scripture says in Acts chapter 2 that after the Holy Spirit came into their hearts, Peter led the apostles to preach to a crowd at Pentecost. And here was his, kind of the, the crux of his message. He said in Acts 2.21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That was his message. And as a result, Scripture says this. Those who received his word, they heard the gospel, they heard the word, they received it, they were baptized, and there were added that day about how many? 3,000 souls. Again, a huge jump. But again, it doesn't stop there. As soon as they had counted, counseled, baptized them, Luke paints this amazing picture of the first church. Acts 2, uh, 42 through 47, it says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which the apostles were just teaching what Jesus had taught them, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, or eating in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day by day by day those who were being saved. Yeah, so this prototype, if you will, of the New Testament church, this first one, it was an ever-increasing group of Christ followers that worshipped and fellowship together, that ministered to each other and ministered to others, and then went and spread the gospel and multiplied over and over, day by day, adding to the church. So again, what started with one man calling a few people was now in the thousands. And somewhere in the mix of all these new Christians, we, we don't know the number at this point, but somewhere in the mix was a little-known man from Damascus named Ananias. Never really noticed Ananias until really just a few months ago. According to Acts chapter 9, which is really, there, there's a few different Ananiases in scripture. There's one that lied to the Holy Spirit and him and his wife died, not that one. And then there was another one that came a little bit later. So this Ananias was from Damascus and according to Acts 9, uh, God had uh, led him to, to go and essentially dis find and help and disciple a man named Saul. Ananias was initially a little scared to do it because of who Saul was. He was a persecutor of the church. But he overcame his fear. And in boldness, he took Ananias, Ananias took Saul in and he spent time with him. We don't know how much time. Scripture says that in many days he spent with him. Saul later became known as Paul, who was a key church planter throughout Asia. This man Ananias played a huge role in the, in the church's timeline, leading to this man named Paul, who played what appears to be even a bigger role in the church's timeline. And he even wrote a few good books, too. You see those in Scripture. But Paul was just another man, living out his faith, worshiping with believers, fellowshipping with believers, ministering, uh, multiplying, planting churches. And it didn't end with Paul. Paul went and found this guy named Timothy. We have two, you know, two books in the New Testament. Letters to the Apostle Paul. Timothy, when, uh, when Paul found him, he, he helped train him, helped disciple him, helped ordain him, and position him as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. 
church history tells us. Listen to what Paul told Timothy. You then, my child, Timothy wasn't his physical child, but his spiritual child, again, because he trained him, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So follow along with me. Jesus discipled a handful of people who shared the gospel with many more people, including a man named Ananias, who discipled Paul, who discipled Timothy. And Timothy said, I want you to take what you have been taught from down the line, and I want you to now teach it to other faithful men who will teach it to others also. To the point that eventually, at some point, someone told us about Jesus. And maybe we couldn't trace it back, you know, with DNA tests or whatever, a history test. Maybe we couldn't trace it back to Jesus and Timothy and Paul. But that's what we see in Scripture, that it went from one to a handful to many to this Ananias to Paul to Timothy. And on and on and on to the point to where we are sitting here today because someone discipled someone else. And eventually, someone shared the gospel with us. Again, because of discipleship. And so now we're faced with this question, what are we doing about our discipleship. What are we doing about our discipleship? It's cool to see that story. It's cool to think of that timeline. And it's cool to see the picture of how important it is. But what are we doing about our discipleship? If discipleship is a process of becoming like Christ for Christians, what are we doing about it? Because for many people, here's what I've found. We, we take the truths that, number one, God's grace is undeserved by us. It is true. Justification is applied to us, and salvation is a gift given for us that cannot be removed from us. Those are all true. But, but many people have taken those truths out of context, and they've developed this idea that all we need to do is to pray a prayer, attend some services, try not to cuss too much, and the rest we can just let go and let God. It'll happen. Just, just let it go. Let God. I don't really need to do a whole lot about this. He saved me. He gave it to me. He called me. And I'm just going just gonna to let it happen. And honestly, I, I think we have developed, so many people have developed that kind of hands-off, passive appro approach to Christianity or their discipleship because that is what has been sold to them by so many preachers and so many churches. Like, hey, all you got to do is just show up. Uh, maybe sign something, maybe say something, and we will take care of the rest. But Christianity, our discipleship, is not passive. It is an active relationship and lifestyle. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2. He said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, this is an interesting phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. So do we work for our salvation? No. It's not by our works of righteousness we can be saved. We can't do it. We can't reach God. We don't work for our salvation, but the salvation that is given to us, we do work it out. We perform it in order to mold our spiritual life in the same way that we exercise in order to mold our physical body, or at least they say you should work out to exercise your physical body. I'm, I'm not so doing so great at that right now. 
But lest we think it's about us or all about us, he continues in that same passage and he says this in Philippians 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says, I want you to work out your salvation. God has given it to you. Now perform it. Work it out. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or you could say, uh, it is God who works in you both to will, to desire, to want to, and to work, to put these things into effect for his good pleasure. So is God working in us, or are we working in God? Everybody say yes. Yes. God is working in us, and we are working in God. Yes, it's both. This is good. God saves us makes us a new creation, instills in us a will, a desire, and even gives us the power to please him. But we then have the responsibility to obey him and to do the work he has called us to do, to work out that salvation. And finally, if he wasn't clear enough, he continues in Philippians chapter 4, he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing, we are, so, I am so, I'll say, speak for myself, I don't do that one so well. Do all these things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, it's active, to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not, listen to how Paul talks about his own discipleship, his own Christianity, his own ministry, that I did not run in vain or labor, work in vain. This idea of discipleship is all, active discipleship is all over the New Testament, such as 2 Timothy chapter 2. I love this passage. Do your best, he says. Do your best. Don't just maintain, not just mundane, not just get by, not just passive, hands off, let go, let God, but do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. So think of it like this. If you join the military, you go to basic training, and then you keep training. If you go to college, you go to ordination, and you start studying. You start working. When you start a job, hopefully, not every job, but ideally, when you start a job, you get trained. And then it's probably continual training from there. Before you fly a plane, drive a car, use a forklift, perform a surgery, tie your shoes, you got to be taught to do it. And the more difficult the task, the longer the training, and some training never stops. And so when I played football in high school, and I guess you could call it playing football, it's more like falling, hitting, hitting people and grunting a lot. It was, it was kind of more what we did. But when I played football in high school, I didn't learn my position or, or better myself in my position just by watching other people play. That would be nice, right? I'm just going to show up going to watch you guys play while I sit over here and eat popcorn and then put me in coach, I'll be just fine. Now, you, you can't learn the, the difficulties and, and the, uh, the nuances of a sport. You can't mold your body in such a way and speed up and hit hard. All those things are required from a sport uh, such as football just by watching. Nor did I get better just by playing some Tecmo Super Bowl. Anybody remember that? That was the best football game ever created. Madden, Tecmo Super Bowl is where it's at. But that's not how you got better. No, you had to practice. You had to work out. You had to eat protein. You had to go to two-a-days. You had to go to three-a-days. That's what we did in Chesney. It's probably illegal now, but we went three-a-days. And you had to do all the rest. 
You had to evaluate. You had to get fussed at by the coach. It was hard work. Every sport is the same way. You don't just show up, watch a few things, and just start playing. Be really good. You play like you, anybody? Practice. (laughs) Three people. You play like you practice, right? That's what we're told in sports. So Paul continued, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Again, just to drive this idea home. It's not about passive discipleship, it's active. He said, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 1 Timothy 4. So as followers of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we must take an active role in our discipleship to grow into that unashamed worker, to train ourselves for godliness, for God's glory. That's what we're called to do. And so lastly, that's what discipleship is. That's what we need to do about it. But how do we work out our discipleship? Through the desire and the power given to us by God. How do we work it out? And there's so many answers that we could provide here. uh, Answers that maybe many of you are already doing. No doubt. But I want to give us, back to that kind of, that, that house model, I want to give us four fundamental categories of action that every believer is expected to do. Every believer, not just some, every believer is expected to do it as part of the local church because we need the local church and the local church needs us and in order to develop to our fullest potential. This isn't just about what the church is doing. This is for us to develop, to train ourselves, as we just read, into that, into godliness or to become that unashamed worker, to work hard because it's worth it. And so again, let's go back to that drawing board with the house model. And here's what it looks like. With belief as the foundation of our, of our life, and we're trying to build up into discipleship, here's what leads us to discipleship. And it's these four pillars. Worship, fellowship, ministry, and mission. Worship, fellowship, ministry, and mission. You can, again, just kind of imagine this house, and, and, and it's all to the glory of God, but these are the columns that hold up, that build up our discipleship. Worship, fellowship, ministry, and mission. Get used to those words. We'll be hearing them a lot uh, in the future. But to be clear, the, these are not the things that already mature Christians are to do. These aren't what you do when you arrive, when you're a seasoned believer. No, these are the things that actually mature you. And as I mentioned, they were the, they were the things that the first Christians in the first church were doing in beautiful, passionate, and organic ways. Abstract ideas won't get us very far, so let's get very practical. As followers of Christ this morning, how do we worship, fellowship, do ministry, and do mission? And, and let me just give you some ideas here. Number one, we worship God by reading and studying scripture, by talking with our Heavenly Father through prayer, by repenting of sin, fasting, to feed our spirit by depriving our physical bodies, by gathering with others like this to celebrate and give God thanks, which we have done this morning, 
We worship by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as Paul tells us, with our, with our hearts bowed low and our hands lifted high. Why do we do that? Because there is no one and nothing else more worthy of our praise and adoration and our hands being lifted high than our King of Kings. So we learn from pastors faithfully teaching God's word in our worship. We prioritize the things of God in our life. That's how we worship. Worship is about a thriving relationship with God that influences everything about us until one day we worship him face to face. But often we get distracted in our worship, don't we? I think of uh, a woman named Martha in Luke chapter 10, the sister of Mary. Martha was so distracted by, by what she wanted to do and by what Mary wasn't doing, about what others wasn't, weren't doing, and she began to complain to Jesus, the King of Kings, who was there, she could have worshipped him, but instead she just got distracted, complaining about her situation, complaining about the people around us. And that happens to us all the time. The king of kings is in front of us in a spiritual way, among us, and we don't worship him because we complain. We're distracted. Think about our situation. We think about the people beside us. It happens all the time. But worship, again, is focusing in, prioritizing on God in our life in a way that affects every area of our life. And James 3.10 says that we cannot bless and curse at the same time. Or, or if you will, we cannot worship and complain at the same time. And we know that because we've been there. That's how we worship. Number two, and there's many more things we could say. Number two, we fellowship. How do we fellowship? We fellowship by meeting people and beginning relationships. By encouraging and challenging others with scripture. Listening to others, which is hard. It's going to listen. And at times being honest with others, sharing our heart with others, by eating meals together, just something about getting together with other people and just sharing a meal, breaking bread, drinking, eating, having that experience. There's something about it that elicits fellowship. We fellowship by being humble about ourselves and vulnerable to others. We fellowship by doing the one another's of Scripture, such as deferring one another, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, forgiving one another. The crucial environments in the church for fellowship aren't this. There's a little fellowship that happens on Sunday mornings as we gather together, but, but there's no honest, uh, heartfelt, listening con and, and honest conversations happening right now. I, we're, we're, we're doing something that's important, but it's not fellowship necessarily. You might fellowship when you go get a cinnamon roll before you leave, uh, and I'm sure there's some left, so you should grab one before you leave. But fellowship happens in smaller groups. And so it's an important ministry of the church, whether they meet here on campus before service, like many do, whether they meet at a coffee shop or a restaurant, like some do, or they meet in your home. You discuss scripture together, you pray for one another, care for one another, live life together, just as Jesus lived his life with the disciples. Fellowship requires close and consistent relationships, the kind reflected in what's known as the Hebrew Shema in Deuteronomy 6. I want to read this. This is what God told the fathers to do with the children. In, the, in, it, in their home, but here, here, this could apply to all of us. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen to this. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. When? You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. What about the church service? That's good. But when you sit in your house, talk about them. When you walk, by the way, when you're going places, when you're in the car. They don't have cars. We have cars. Don't just play the video. Don't just, you know, crank up the music. That's fun sometimes. But, man, what an opportunity to talk, Right? When you lie down, when you rise, when you live life, that's when discipleship and fellowship happens. 
Number three, we do ministry by using our talents to serve others in our family, in our work, in our school, in our church. We use our talents to serve. That's ministry. We minister by stewarding our time and our energy to do things of significance. By giving our tithes and offerings to support ministries, missions, and church staff. We do ministry by blessing and helping people in, in our community, in our neighborhood. Ministry is not the calling of some, but the privilege of all. Acts 4 tells us the pastors have, a, have an important role in ministry. It is to lead, it is to be the example, and it is to equip the saints, the believers, the church, to do the work of the ministry. We are all called to do ministry. And, and practically speaking, here's what we want to see for everybody that calls Sheroff First Baptist their home. This is your home church here, and I recognize that doesn't apply to all of you. Some of you are visiting from out of town. Some of you are visiting family. Maybe you're just not sure where you sit yet with, uh, with this church. But if this is your church home, here's, here's, what we, here's what we both need and here's what we expect. That, that at least once a month you would serve on a ministry team. That you would use your God-given gifts and talents and energy and time to serve others. That's the ministry of the church. Not just so the church will run although that's important, and not just, uh, not just because we need each other, which we do, but it is how, one of the major ways how we grow and, and take control of our discipleship on our own. i got to finish. Number four, we do missions. How do we do missions? By inviting someone into our life, into our home, into our small group, into our church. We invite them in. Not just, hey, would you come? You know, you know I'll, I'll wave to you from a distance, but really inviting them into our life and spending time with them for the purpose of communicating the gospel to them, for the purpose of training them, for the purpose of sharing what God has done in your life. We do missions by finding a few people that are a little bit behind us spiritually and spending time with them, meeting with them to have honest conversations about scripture and life. We do missions by interjecting scripture, by interjecting the gospel and our testimony into normal interactions with our lost neighbors, our friends, and our family. Just interjecting scripture, interjecting truth in our normal conversations. We do missions by going and loving people in need, locally, nationally, and internationally, like some of the things that we're doing this summer. We do missions by planting churches in gospel-deficient areas, like Pastor Joe has done, like so many other uh, church planners have done. Missions is not about letting our discipleship end with us. Remember, we are here because someone discipled us, whether they did a good job or not, whether that was our father or mother or grandparent or pastor, whatever. It's just choosing to, missions is choosing to not let our discipleship end with us, finding somebody else and helping them follow Christ too. Let me invite the band to come up as we close. And we're going to sing some of this, this closing song. It, it says, Build My Life, which I think is very appropriate for this. But let me be clear about a couple things as we close. Number one, discipleship is not a program. It's not a program, but it requires a good system to get us on track and to keep us on pace. And you'll be hearing about that system soon for our church. Number two, discipleship is not a curriculum. Although there are many resources that are helpful to us in addition to the Bible for our discipleship. Number three, discipleship is not about a pastor. But as we said, under the Good Shepherd, our goal as pastors, Pastor Trey and Rod and I, is to, to equip you, to help you in those areas. Worship, 
uh, uh, fellowship ministry and mission help you take your next step in whatever that area is for, for you to take, become active in your own discipleship. That's why we are here. Number four, discipleship is not about what those people across the aisle need to do. It's about what we need to do ourselves. Discipleship is not about just information, but correct theology and right doctrine sets the foundation as we saw in the picture. And lastly, discipleship is not about a big moment in life. Like, if I can just get that big moment, it's going to change my life. No, discipleship is about a bunch of little moments and little steps on the journey of life. Just one step, one foot after the other. That's why God saved us, and that's what brings him the most glory with our life. And so no matter how you got here, no matter what, no matter how you got to this earth, no matter how you got here in this service, God's wonderful yet difficult plan is to worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to grow in fellowship with others, which is loving our neighbor as ourselves, to minister to others with our time, talents, and treasures, and to intentionally and missionally disciple others. Worship, fellowship, ministry, and mission. So let me ask this question as we end. How is your discipleship? What steps do we need to take this morning or this week? What, what just one foot in front of ourselves? Just what little step, what little moment do we need to take this morning in those areas, in those categories to take more active control in training ourselves for godliness, becoming the unashamed worker that God has called us to be, to take control of our discipleship? What is that little step? Maybe you're worshiping well, but you're not fellowship with the, fellowshipping with other believers. Maybe you're in a small group and you meet regularly and it's wonderful, but you haven't taken the step to begin to serve in your gifts and talents for the glory of God in the, in the building up of the church. Or maybe you've been growing in your faith, but now it's the time to pass that faith on to somebody else and help them. Or maybe, and I'll say this and we'll, we'll pray. Maybe this morning you recognize that you can't even do the first thing. You can't really worship God because you're not a true disciple of Christ. And that, that's a very helpful realization if that's you this morning. You're not actually a disciple of Jesus Christ. You've never really started following him. You've never given up all and, and, and accept, this, is, this is the gospel. I believe that. Repent of my sins. Follow you. God, thank you for, for what you've done for me. I'm responding to your grace and faith. Maybe you've never done that this morning. Here's the thing. Knowing a few Bible verses going to a few church services, doing more good than bad for the man upstairs. It might make a good country song, but it's not going to get you into heaven. So if you've been a spectator in the crowd, just watching from a distance, make today the day that you say, I'm just, just going to start following Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful that you have uh, provided us this morning for an opportunity to to hear your word, to talk about something so crucial for the church. And I pray that you would lead us in whatever the step is that we need to take. Lord, you, you are good. You are worth it. You are worth not just our death one day, but you are worth our life right now. I pray that we give our all to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite us to stand as we uh, close.